Hi, how you doing? I want to thank you for sticking with us. What a, what a great crowd. I should have said before uh, the last uh, uh, panel that uh, Google and Southwest Airlines were very generous in their support specifically of the first session, and they are as well of this. And I'm sorry to have not had that on my long list. Uh, that, was a, that was fun, wasn't it? Well, this will be even funner, I promise. Uh, now I'm pleased to introduce the last of our two closing keynote sessions, our National Media Roundtable, as always featuring big names and big brains and big personalities, putting the news of the day, the issues of the moment, and the tentpole topics that have been the basis for this weekend's program into context and perspective. We curate this session's lineup very carefully, and we have a great one for you this year. God knows there's plenty to talk about. Uh, the frame around our conversation is the fire hose of news, the disruption of everything we've ever been trained to believe about the presidency, the full-on transformation of politics into a reality show, and the persistent chaos that has come to be the new normal, or as I like to think of it, the new abnormal. Let me say a few words about our guests and we're going to go. On my left, Chris Saliza, who is a politics reporter and editor-at-large at CNN, covering national politics under a self-styled vertical, The Point with Chris Saliza, which includes a nightly newsletter and daily Amazon Echo and Google Home flash briefings. Chris previously spent a decade at The Washington Post, where he founded the popular political blog known as The Fix, and he was an MSNBC political contributor. Long ago, he was the White House correspondent for Roll Call and covered gubernatorial and House races for the Cook Political Report. He's a native of Connecticut and a graduate of Georgetown University. Ben Dominich is publisher of The Federalist, the conservative online magazine, and host of its podcast, The Federalist Radio Hour. He also writes The Transom, a weekly newsletter for political insiders, and is a commentator who regularly appears on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC and CBS's Face the Nation. Previously, he was a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute, and a speechwriter for Health and Human Services Secretary Tommy Thompson and U.S. Senator John Cornyn. Ben is a native of South Carolina. He attended the College of William and Mary. Virginia Heffernan, journalist and cultural critic and co-host of the Slate Trumpcast, which if you were fortunate enough to be here for last night, awesome. She was here as part of the Trump cast, a columnist for Fast Company and the author of Magic and Loss, The Internet as Art, which was published last year. She formerly served as Slate's TV critic, as a TV critic, magazine columnist, and opinion writer for the New York Times, as an editor at Harper's and Talk, and as a national correspondent for Yahoo News. She got her start as a fact checker for The New Yorker. We should all do that. <laughs> a New Hampshire native, Virginia has an undergraduate degree from the University of Virginia and a master's and a PhD from Harvard. Indira Lakshmanan is a Washington columnist for the Boston Globe and the Newmark Chair for Journalistic Ethics at the Pointer Institute. During her career, she's reported from 80 countries on six continents. A familiar presence on TV shows like PBS's Washington Week and MSNBC's The 11th Hour. She's written for the International Herald Tribune, Bloomberg, and other news organizations. She began her career on NPR's Foreign Desk, and since 2015 has guest-hosted national NPR shows like Here and Now and The Diane Reem Show. Indira is a graduate of Harvard University as well. 
Charlie Pierce is fi finally Charlie Pierce on the end, lead political blogger for Esquire, a regular contributor to the NPR programs Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Only a Game. He formerly wrote for the Boston Globe, the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine, and the Boston Phoenix, along with two much-missed sports publications, Grantland and The National. His works yeah. appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the LA Times Magazine, The Nation, The Atlantic, Slate, and Chicago Tribune. He's the author of four books, most recently, Idiot America. A native of Massachusetts, he's a graduate of Marquette University. Please join me in welcoming our awesome panel. So I thought, as a group, we might decide to take a knee in protest of the end of the Texas Tribune Festival. What do you think? Um, so I was up this morning, as I said to Senators Cruz and Cornyn, quite early, and there was the president, Virginia, tweeting about Colin Kaepernick in the NFL at 5.44 a.m. my time, suggesting uh, that the NFL and NFL owners take action against players who protest. Uh, yesterday, he, or the day before, I think, he referred to Colin Kaepernick indirectly as a son of a bitch. Uh, what are we to make of this? I love when politics and culture and sports all commingles. What, what do we make of this? Make of, 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 the, of the Kaepernick week. story as a, as a story and the political ramifications of it and the president deciding to get off the sidelines, as it were. I like it when they say the president took to Twitter. You know how and now we, people take to Twitter. And take to Twitter. At the New York <laughs> Times, we, we weren't allowed to say tweet for a long time because um, it was like a, an entry on the micro-blogging platform Twitter. Um, <laughs> Very timesy. <laughs> It doesn't um, even, of course he said it on Twitter, and um, I think the content is less important than the platform, um, and that 140 characters, um, and when he chooses to tag people, and when he chooses, which is rarely, when he chooses hashtags, um, and the fact that many of our days start with the you know, punch in the stomach or the um, breakfast taco that is, Donald Trump's tweets. Um, and, uh, you know, today he waited till 5.44 Austin time, so uh, meaning 6.44 his own time. That's he slept, he slept in, didn't him. he? He slept in. Yeah, he slept in. Um, yeah. And that suggests a level of, um, of sanity. I mean, you know, the fact that we're all Talmudic scholars reading these tweets is maddening. But I think the place to process something like this is like, LeBron James did yesterday, which is on Twitter. Um, and uh, I've come to the point where I want to urge everyone to be on Twitter. Um, oh, no. Uh, right, no, no, no. okay. That feels like bad advice. No. Now, so, now, now you did it. <laughs> so that's, no, that's, yes. that's fantastic. That's the usual groan line about Twitter. But one right. thing I've heard in this conference is we wish that harken, we harken back to the old days of three networks or, you know, four including PBS and when everyone read the New York Times and the Washington Post. What if we could design a platform that was populist and yet brought together people of diverse opinions, including all of us, right. including, you know, David Frum and Bill Crystal, everybody's including favorite. including a lot of Russian bots. <laughs> right, yeah, well, I'm about to say, actually, Ben's gonna bust out of his suit here. Um, I actually see Facebook as broken. Facebook is giving testimony. Facebook is, you know, has a lot to answer for. Twitter has done a much, much better job, imperfect job, of, um, of, of putting down bots and trolls. There is 
a level of civilized discussion there that I don't even remember happening at the New York Times. Chris, I, I like the use of the word Talmudic by Virginia because one of the features of the Trump-Twitter relationship is that when uh, Jared and Ivanka are away for Shabbat, he's unsupervised. <laughs> But I we're sundown. sundown I think the word you were looking for is unmedicated. No, I'm not. I'm going to go with unsupervised. And so Saturday morning is prime Trump, Trump tweeting time, yep. right? Well, remember, Saturday morning was uh, March 3rd or 4th was when he did the My Wires Are Being Tapped tweet. Saturday, uh, Saturday morning Yeah, that at was a, a classic Shabbat tweet. So, but, but, but to, uh, to, to Virginia's point, the, the, it's not that the president doesn't know what he's doing on Twitter. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah, so right. I've, um, I wrote a piece yesterday about Trump uh, with the NFL and NBA stuff. And um, my long-term approach to Trump has been a, a, essentially that there, okay, very quickly, there are basically two ways you can go with Trump, I think. One is he's playing four-dimensional chess, that he understands the media landscape, he understands the political landscape better than any of us can see. He is playing a game we can't see, uh, and therefore judging it by conventional standards is wrong. Okay, That's the one approach. The other approach is that he's playing zero-dimensional chess, <laughs> which has long been my default in that I'd always approach it as, he just says stuff. He's a provocateur. That, that's who he has always been in his life. He is someone yeah. who likes to be in the center of attention. He is someone who likes to say things. Now, what is, I think, very difficult in the wake of Charlottesville, in the wake of the campaign as related to David Duke, what, uh, and then yesterday, it's very hard for me to conclude at this point, based on the evidence that we have, that he doesn't, that he's just saying stuff, that he doesn't have any sense of how that will land. He has to know after Charlottesville, every Republican, I shouldn't say every, the vast majority most, of Republicans said, most. this is not the way we handle it, this is not presidential, this is not how we should do it. So then, when you use words, and I would point people, if you haven't seen it, go and watch or listen, it's long, it's an hour and 20 minutes, his speech for Luther Strange in Alabama. But he uses phrases like, they are disrespecting our heritage. We can't allow this. Now, he is speaking to a crowd that is overwhelmingly white. I, I didn't see everyone in the crowd. I'm not going to say everyone in the crowd was white, but the crowd is overwhelmingly white. Well, you know, the reason Context, you didn't see the crowd is because CNN won't show the crowds. Yeah, says, I mean, right? I saw... <laughs> of course, he always says that just as CNN is showing the crowd, but that's... Right. Uh, but I don't know how you can conclude that he is solely just saying Same. things now because the con He is not... I don't believe he is a dumb man. I don't believe that. I believe he understands how the media works. I believe he understands how he is perceived. And I believe he this stuff, it, I just don't see how you reasonably can conclude he's doing it by, he's just saying it. He's doing it by accident. Uh, you know, Indira, this is the, the predicament that everybody in the press and not in the press has had during this entire uh, dance with Trump, going back to June of 2015. It was, and I think that's the, the Selena Zito line, which is overquoted, but I'm gonna contribute to that problem and overquote it again is that, uh, that critics of Trump's, including the media, often take him uh, literally but not seriously, and the people out there who like Trump take him seriously but not literally. And so Trump understands that he can say stuff, and even if it is not exactly what ends up happening or exactly 
uh, what he means, it's all good, right? So far, it has been all good for him. And so far, we have seen, if we look at the polls, that no matter what he says, and there were so many times in the 2016 campaign and so many times since he was elected that many of us have said, no, 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 that's going too far. You right. can't say that. You know, you can't have the pussy tape or you can't, you know. Um, I wouldn't have bet of the six of us up here that you were the first one to say that <laughs> word. I'm just going <laughs> to. I'm just going to go all, on the record. Oh, Evan, I've known her a long time. Right? Yeah. I'm going to go on the record hard. with that. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. We worked together at the yeah. Globe a long time ago. <laughs> Um, so, yes, so I, I think there's so many times, you know, so many inflection points where he would have said, no, 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 he can't get away with that. And he has. His level of support hasn't dipped below one third in any poll that I've ever seen. However, I think the problem is when you start hitting Americans where they sort of eat and sleep, and that's major league sports. I think, I mean, I don't know. I'm going to guess right. that it's not a good strategy. You can mess with my health care. Yes. But don't talk about the NFL. That's what right. I think. And I think. When you have Robert Kraft, who all along, the owner of the New England Patriots, who all along has been a supporter of Trump's, you know, the Patriots were supportive of That's him. That's just because he wanted his ring back from Putin. But, to, yeah, he wants his ring back he from Putin. Ring That's back true, Putin. too. Um, Google Super Bowl ring Bob Kraft, if you don't yeah. know what we're talking about. But seriously, I think that when you have Bob Kraft, of all people, who's a member of Mar-a-Lago and other clubs of Donald Trump's, a friend of Donald Trump's, having to come out and make a statement in defense of his players, I mean, there are two things here. One is that the NFL is all white owners and mostly black players. The, um, the NBA is a little bit different. It's always been more activist. The owners have sided more with the players who are also majority yeah. black. I think that when you have both of those you know, leagues coming out and saying, whoa, 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 what about the First Amendment, Mr. President, or other words? Um, and seeing so many players yesterday taking to Twitter themselves and tweeting out their disgust and their irritation, I think at some point, you know, I don't know, sports is kind of a sacred thing right. in America. Well, in fact, I, I we're think gonna, we, we think we're going to see today, there's apparently word of a, a mass... Uh, well, the Jaguars... Yeah, it's just going to encourage more people uh, to The Jaguars and the Ravens have already done so yeah. overseas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> and, so it, so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't count, right? But, exactly. Well, but it's worth noting, by the way, yeah. that the Jaguars owner donated more than a million yes. dollars to Trump causes. So too. I mean, Bob Kraft yeah. is certainly more high profile, but right. I mean, yes. the, the NFL ownership is a, is a small group of 32 people largely who were supportive of Donald and Trump. At right. and, right. and at least one who's now a Trump ambassador. So, I mean, the, the fact right. is they're Wouldn't very close. Uh, ben, so I'm thinking of you as the Trump base whisperer. That may be a mistake, but relatively <laughs> speaking, you probably understand what the base might be thinking at this moment because that really is the question for the president. He, well, he, he, how, how has this let, affected let, him? Well, let's, yeah. let's back up for a second. So just in terms of the Kaepernick situation, which I don't think that you can extend to the rest of the folks who are going to be kneeling today in, re in reaction to what Trump is saying. I think Kaepernick made an error which is fundamental to his cause, and I say this as someone who is overwhelmingly supportive of criminal justice reform, who has been very critical of the over-arming uh, of police forces across the nation, believe that it's terrible that you have small towns that have SWAT teams that are essentially armed as if they're in the military, et cetera. The fact is that if you look back at our history, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, and every successful civil rights leader has essentially made the argument that America is a good place and we would like to be included in it. That's the difference between him and those who have essentially stood up and say, this flag stands for a shithole 
that treats my people terribly. That, that's your interpretation of the Kaepernick and that, position. And that, I think, is how people are interpreting the Kaepernick thing, which is not actually what I think he intended to do. I think he intended to say something about the way that cops treat black Americans, which is important and ought to be made, a point that ought to be made. But the point, if you go back and you read the parts of Martin Luther King's speech from the Lincoln Memorial that are not frequently quoted, one of the things that he really emphasizes is America is a good place, and we would like to be included in it. This is a check we are not able to cash. Uh, ben, but you know, uh, uh, Senators Cornyn and Cruz, who were here before, when we talked about Colin Kaepernick, they said, actually, this is not about race and criminal justice. This is about disrespecting first responders. Yeah, I, I, I just don't, I don't really buy that. I mean, well, you know, yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's about disrespecting the flag either. Well, yeah. but I think you that know. is how, I think that's I mean, how I, I mean, viewers, I just, I don't viewers see that. interpret it that And way. for example, you know, Frederick Douglass was all in favor of William Lloyd Garrison burning the Constitution and calling it a pact with the devil yes, on the steps of the Massachusetts State House. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ambiguity later, here. Charles, you know that. You know that he came around and rejected that later and said that he thought that it was wrong. He then became a defender of the Constitution. Well, he, I mean, be, he became a fulfiller of the Constitution once the, re the Reconstruction uh, amendments were passed and then was horrified when the government reneged on that particular promissory Char note. Charlie, you're, you're a sports guy by disposition, although that's obviously not all you do and not all, all you've done, but you know that activism in sports is a long tradition sure. in this country. I mean, I, I was just reading today, and I'd right? forgotten this completely, that Mudcat Grant refused to stand for the national anthem in 1960. This is lost to history. Right. Um, and then you start, work, you, you start going through everything else, and you, I mean, Muhammad Ali is kind of sui generis in this regard because he became such an enormous international figure. But Tommy Smith, what, people remember Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 68 Olympics. What they don't remember is that the, the three Americans who, who swept the medals in the 400 meters that year went to the stand wearing black berets. Uh, what they don't remember is Wayne Collette and Vince Matthews in 1972, who demonstrated on the, on the victory stand in Munich. What they don't remember is 1968, when Vera Koslovska, a Czechoslovakian gymnast, refused to look at the Russian flag during her, her uh, uh, medal ceremony. Because uh, the tanks rolled into Prague like a month and a half earlier. So, I mean, I, I, I have, you know, these, these are large public spectacles. Large public spectacles are wonderful venues for making your point. Now, are you, are you effectively making your point? We're going to have to see. But I, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, I never thought I'd see athletes in 2017 as generally yeah. opposed to something as they have been over the last two days. Right, and Ben, the thing that we're not talking about, and then I want to go to Virginia mm -hmm. on how this extends over to the president's overall popularity, right? Uh, ben, the other thing we're not talking about is uh, Steph Curry making a statement on behalf of the Warriors that he was not entirely good with the White House invitation, and then the president saying, well, if that's the case, if Steph Curry is wavering, then I withdraw my invitation to the Warriors. I mean, we really are in bizarro world, are we not? Well, but let's, but let's keep in mind, I mean, over and over again, the, pres the president, prior to becoming the president and still as the president, has used this, con this constant culture war to his benefit. Yes, it is, it is arguably he got elected on this, right? tribal. It is partisan, yep. he uses it, and he does it in a very, I, I, I agree with Chris, I, do, I, I think he knows how these things land and the messages yeah, I think, that I they think send. The one thing but, I but will the one, but, but let me, but let me, let me just say, yep. I, I think that the, the problem is that over time we've seen America become more and more tribal and divided in a lot of different ways. 
and the president feeds a lot of those things. But I also think that the, the constant freak out over what the president does also feeds those things. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the problem that we currently inhabit, which is essentially that uh, the, the way to get out of the current predicament that we're in is increased social bonds, neighborhood, the ability to see over di the different lines that separate us. Donald Trump won the presidency by winning about approximately 200 counties out of the 700 that voted for Barack Obama twice. Hillary Clinton won six of the 2,000 that never voted for Barack Obama. That has to change in order for the country to be able to communicate with each other and to have the ability to have bonds of neighborhood and community that lead us to trust our fellow citizens and not view them as people of a different tribe who are coming to smack you down. Virginia, what, yeah, give me that. Right. <laughs> all, all of this notwithstanding, right, the president still is a figure uh, who is controversial and who is not entirely popular within the broad swath of this country. I mean, the, guy, the guy's approval ratings are at, are at the moment at the lowest level for a president yep. at this point in a presidency in 71 years, according right. to the, a new Washington Post ABC News poll, has the president's popularity at 39% the lowest of any president at this point in office in 71 years. And that's an affirmative move for people taking those polls. That's not, I mean, if you think about that no, you know, the majority of Americans don't know what the First Amendment is. So they're called up and asked, do you approve of this president? That is, used to be tautological. There used to be almost no way out of that question for the majority of Americans. Of course, you approve of the president. Um, and now affirmatively to say, I don't approve, Yep. is almost to say, I disapprove. And I think that that has been, it's been a, almost a violent affront on Americans to have a president like this who not only, um, who constantly restages his transgressions of norms. So it isn't as though he accidentally expresses disapproval of the NFL and then has to, has to dial it back. Walk it back, right, yeah. He, he's, he, he um, is constantly telling us that he has a locker room way of talking, that has been behind closed doors, and now the duct tape is off his mouth, and he is allowed finally to say the misogynistic racist shit that everybody actually says behind closed doors. The perfect example of this is how often his radical foreign policy was grounded not on hawkish decisions or, protect, or protectionist decisions, isolationist decisions about how to protect the United States, but he was constantly telling us that the signature move of his foreign policy was that he would say what other people wouldn't say, radical Islamic terrorism. I've said it. That's it. That's his policy. And his policy, uh, you know, about women is, I've been held back for so long, forget political correctness, I'm going to comment on women's looks, on their fuckability, on whatever. That's, you know, the way I talk. And, um, and, you know, and, 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 you know. Really slipped that one yeah, under the radar. Yeah, that was, that was, that oh, was. Really? I was thinking, was that? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Just took a minute. I got it now. You yeah. guys who do I'm with you now. You so guys wait, who do but, so but, much but, TV. But, but, We've Virginia, got an R rating at Trump but, 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 Virginia, do you, keep in mind, I mean, you look at that UN speech, a UN speech that was applauded by people at the Weekly Standard, at Commentary, at Bloomberg. Eli Lake at Bloomberg said, I felt like I was listening, I could close my eyes, I thought I was in a, a, a meeting, an editorial meeting with Bill Kristol, listening to that UN speech. Um, isn't, isn't this an example where for all the different things that he said during that campaign, this is just one more example of that in Washington the swamp drains you? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, he's had, what, two days that he became presidential. And in a way, those are also spiteful acts because he wants, he acts against type briefly in order to, you know, keep us on our toes. You know, you brought up chess and this question of, is he crazy or crazy like a fox? That we're always, I mean, that's partly the new abnormal. It's like right. the constant questioning of ourselves of, you know, do we have a madman for a president? Is it do him or is it us, right? A, a Putin-style operator that, like, is acting in this way to, you know... He's the dog who caught the car. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> there's, a, like, there's this intelligence gap between what we imagine the Kremlin's up to, which is very, very complicated, and, 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 the, and Facebook's hack and Cambridge Analytica. And then there's, like, the, you know, your very unwell uncle making all this noise. Right. And that conflict, I think, is part of what's given this time, this uncanny, abnormal. Indira, I'm going to Indira and then Chris. Indira, this is an interesting uh, thought because it relates actually back to the president's comments on Twitter this morning. You know, subtext has now become text. Right? Yeah. The, the, the president has Nothing now. Nothing is left unsaid. Right. I mean, the president right. is now, in his unwillingness to leave anything unsaid, given yeah. license to other people to leave nothing unsaid. That's and right. he's unleashed what may have actually been just below the surface in a lot of communities around the country. And that's why we're now seeing so much, I would submit, why we're hearing so much that is so surprising to us. But the reality is it was there, it just was. No, it was, I mean, I wanted to, I, I want to comment on that, but I don't want to step on Indira, go ahead. Right. <laughs> well, no, I was just going to say that throughout the campaign, we talked about how Donald Trump was using a, a you know, a dog whistle to, um, you know, to supporters who, ha who felt white cultural dislocation, to racists. I mean, I think he's thrown away the dog whistle and it's just the air horn now. Yeah. You know, yep. it's just out there. He's saying it. And I'd, and I'd just like to point out to, you know, people who might not have noticed this, um, Jimmy Kimmel for days was hammering the president and the Senate over Graham Cassidy, over, you know, yep. repeal of the Affordable Care Act. The president never came onto Twitter and attacked Jimmy Kimmel. Tom Brady, um, the quarterback of the Patriots, who, you know, had been supportive of Donald Trump, his owner was supportive of Donald Trump, decided not to go to the White House. And Donald Trump didn't get on Twitter and say, that Tom Brady, I'm uninviting his So what do, you, what do you take away from that? Race. I mean, it's inescapable. Yeah. Well, it's inescapable that, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, you know, he has... Let's let her absolutely absurd. I'm sorry. Ben, we'll get you back in. Let her finish. We'll get you back in. The fact that Sarah Huckabee Sanders came out onto the podium and told ESPN, you should fire Jamel Hill, and the fact that he would, you know, come out against Steph Curry in a way, I mean, he has not attacked white people who have done these things. He has attacked black people. Now, you know, Chris has written about this, and I completely agree with him in the code words of our heritage, disrespecting our heritage. You know, it's as if he's trying to tell these black athletes, you should be grateful. You know, you're making he all said this you're money. Fired. You should be yeah. grateful and just shut up and do your job. Even Secretary Mnuchin saying, do it on your own time. Wait a second. So does that mean the First Amendment only applies between nine and five? I'm not quite sure. You know, like it doesn't. It doesn't make I'm sense. That's not how yeah, it works in America. I, when I was following the campaign, I had two. I tried to keep two things in mind. Number one, the one thing I will credit Donald Trump for is he understands the utility and the salience of the culture of celebrity better than any president, better than any <laughs> candidate I've ever seen. He has more in common in terms of the way he lived his life prior to running for president with Steph Curry than he does with anybody else. He understands 
that basically there's this universe of celebrity within which he functioned. And that that could, I, I don't know if it was him or Bannon or whoever, explained to him how he could apply that to a political campaign. That's the one thing I'll give him credit for. He, yep. he was universally good at that. Can I just, can I, Charles, I just want to add one very quick thing and go back. It's fascinating how long Donald Trump has been held up by culture broadly prior to his campaign as the rich aspirational guy. Oh. I was randomly going on the internet and I was clicking on YouTube. I was looking for something. I was making reference to lifestyles of the rich. You are looking for porn. Don't get yeah. into this stuff. I mean, come on. We know, we know the internet is only good for gambling. I was, I was like searching that. the internet for content. No, and I came across uh, <laughs> the opening to lifestyles of the rich and famous, which anyone, I think we're yeah. all of an age that we're familiar right. with it. Robin Leach. Robin Leach. And you know who is... I never realized this, but do you know who's in the open of every lesson? Donald, Donald Trump. Trump is walking with Michael Jackson. I was just, and that's he—he, he—he's uh, in Home Alone. Right. You know, he is yeah. held up in this in this way through our culture that he is the the rich, right. successful guy with a beautiful woman. I'm sorry to interrupt. I know, no, just, I, I, know I was gonna, I, about, I was about to say I, because I'm a boring old guy and have no life. I was in my hotel room watching uh, a Law and Order episode from 1989. Sure. And he's in or not, they made a wisecrack. They made a wisecrack about a guy right. who, who was a quote unquote Donald Trump wannabe. And I said to myself, my God, this guy's been around a long time. Yes. Well, actually, anyway, Steve, Steve Kornacki was here, remember, last yeah. year. And Steve Kornacki talked about having uh, his first awareness of Trump was his uh, uncle gave him the Trump board game when he was mm. a kid. I mean, that's, we are talking about prayer. Look, you brought up the swamp, Ben. I never got the second one. I, I am so. <laughs> Oh, I interrupted oh, uh, no, 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 okay, no, go. no, I, no, I got I derailed a little bit. Go uh, ahead. The, the swamp is a great question because it gets back to this idea of whether people are ever going to desert him and the people who supported him particularly who were so full-throated in their love of the idea that we're going to get rid of the swamp, we're going to drain the swamp. The swampiest thing ever, I have to believe, is Tom Price and these planes. <laughs> he gave it up today. And good for Politico, good for Politico. We've talked about accountability journalism this week. Let's give them good credit for, good for, for Dan them. Diamond It was 24 and, flights. And it was Politico an estimated cost of $300,000. And of course, because this is the world we live in, there was a clip of Tom Price attacking of the use of private jets just a couple of years ago <laughs> yeah. on YouTube. I, I, ben, I'm amazed that the people who love the idea of draining the swamp have not revolted against the, the refilling of the swamp and in fact, the overflowing of the water in the swamp. Well, so let's back up a second. Yeah. First off, to, to Charles's point about fame, there's a great line from Lionel Shriver in one of her books about how America is a nation that has forgotten the difference between fame and infamy, which I think yeah. is actually very true when it yeah. comes to the president. Um, the, the fact of the matter when it comes to Indira's comments about the criticisms that he's allayed against people he did not hold back in any way, shape, or form from criticizing John McCain, Carly Fiorina, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, and everyone else who he gave a nickname during the, during the cycle. I think Hillary Clinton. He, too, right? he also That's, said other yeah. things again. He has, he has, he has, he has an <laughs> excellent, he has an excellent faculty. I'm talking about regular people. He has an excellent, point, has an excellent faculty for <laughs> nicknames. Uh, it, it is it actually, John Mulaney is the comedian who most des best describes Trump. He says he is a hobo's idea of what a rich person should be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, would actually, I would actually say it is more like a blue-collar person's idea of what a rich person should be. But he, but he also has a line about the fact that teenagers, more than anything else, have the ability to understand the thing that you are most self-conscious about. Yeah. 
and I'm sure Chris but saying, I'm, yeah, knows that he's probably been teased by teenagers. At one yeah. point or uh, no, he's, I think he is, I, I, he I really very think he, is, attuned he, is, sense he is one of the world's great bullies. Yes. So uh, In that he knows what you're most self, yes. you're insecure about, and he, he zeroes he in zeroes on it. He zeroes in on that. He, he sort of focus groups it, and then he, he yes, narrows yes, it. Yes, right. yes. So uh, in Chris's case, that would be knowing that elevators require power in order That's to work. Right. Which if you one get that reference. Many, one, of my, <laughs> one of my many weaknesses. So, uh, the, so <laughs> I, actually, I actually think, though, that when it comes to the swamp comments that you're making, the, the problem here is that I think people would be paying a lot more attention to the failure of Trump to deliver on that promise if not for this constant freak out, and if not for this thing that we're seeing happen uh, very regularly, where essentially his supporters are being described as, as white supremacists and fascists, and and, and you and, put and you put that the onus for, for for that being done on the press. Well, no, I don't think it's just the press. I think it's I think it's a lot bigger than the press. I think it's uh, you know one of the things that that happens here that benefits him is if you rewind to that scene that happened at the White House Correspondents' Dinner many years ago. Yep where President Obama and Seth Meyers and everyone else is teasing him in this room. Him, Trump. Trump. 2011. Yes. Yep. What, what that allows him to do is something that, that you shouldn't think that a rich guy from New York who is essentially a limousine liberal should be able to do, which is essentially to say, you know what, these, these elites, they hate me the same way that they hate you, mm -hmm. okay? It allows him to be a traitor to his class. And what, what that does is it, disguises the fact that he's actually not delivering on all this. The most consistent person, and I, and I say this without agreeing with her politics almost at all, uh, in terms of her reference to Trump, is Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter came out very early. She wrote a book in Trump We Trust. She backed him on his immigration policy. And now she's leading the impeachment parade, right? she is now parade, right? leading the, we got to yeah. impeach him, and we've right. got to have but, Pence instead, because yes. he is betraying I his wanna, people. But wait a second, he, in 2011, at that White House Correspondents' Dinner, he already was a birther. So it he wasn't was. like he was some elite limousine liberal who suddenly they attacked and then he turned. No, sure. he was a big-time birther. But the idea of Trump claiming the mantle of victimhood is not wrong. Yes. I mean, that, 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 I think that's, there's something to that. Yeah, right, I wanna, but I wanna, the point I, is, I, it's I, not like he turned because now people I, I, I got a chance to make him. my oh, second no. point if I could. Go. All the rallies I went to, I came to one conclusion. A lot of his appeal had to do with economic anxiety and, and you know, frustration with the non-performance of government and anti-establishment feeling and just kind of a general, I hate to use the word, but it's right, malaise toward, uh, but you know what? It was the racism and xenophobia that got people in the building. It was the racism and xenophobia that got people attacking the press. It was the racism and the xenophobia that got the lock them up cheer. If you'd, racism and xenophobia was the guiding principle of the 2016 Republican National Convention. And I will, yeah. never, I will never budge on that. And um, I, I, I got to say, that is why the wall and the Muslim ban have been his most abiding and popular because they, policy. Because they, they, because they, 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 they feed it. into that. Virginia, this is a question that I'm obsessed with. To what degree did the media or elites or whomever, drive people into the arms of Donald Trump through a version of what Ben is talking about. So um, I want to come back to the chess reference, Chris's chess reference. Sure. Um, if you do, if you are already on Twitter, if you, or if you're thinking of getting on Twitter, the, for your first follow should be Gary Kasparov, the chess master. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he's a dissident, and he's highly He was tweeting about Trump 
this morning in response to the Kaepernick stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So he's an incredibly interesting Twitter player, along with an, an interesting chess player. I mean, he's, he doesn't hold a candle to me. I, we've played many times, and I usually win. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, he, um, we had him on Trumpcast, and he was talking about you know, this old saw that, that Putin plays chess and, and, and somebody else in, a, in one of the aphorisms, it's Obama who plays checkers. And what he said is, Putin doesn't play uh, chess, he plays um, poker. Um, that's an elaborate analogy. I refer you to the Trump cast where he, he spells this all out. Um, but I think that what Trump plays is, is what's called park chess, um, as opposed to tournament chess, which is what Kasparov plays. Tournament chess, as you know, is like incredibly well thought out. The person stays really still. They're thinking mathematically. They're thinking ahead. Park chess, the way you win at park chess is you lean forward, you turn on the timer, and you intimidate the shit out of your opponent. You force errors. And, um, and park chess players can sometimes beat tournament players if a tournament player is unstable, like if they can easily be thrown. Someone like Kasparov obviously can keep his, his bearing and keep, keep math in his mind and not worry that someone across from him is saying he's got bleeding plastic surgery or you know, he's uh, fat or whatever. He does, he, that's not gonna throw his game. The problem with the media is we play tournament chess. We think we are, we're swampy in the sense that we have a technocratic idiom that bu- bugs everyone and seems elitist. We sound shrill like Hillary Clinton. We're not charismatic. And the reason everyone likes chess, park chess players is, you know, they're like hotheads and they're emotional and they're always leaning forward. And we, unlike Gary Kasparov, had our game thrown by the constant, you know, violence and psyops of a park chess player. I love that analogy. I, you know? I, I, I do think... I love that. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that... Um, the, the, the mainstream media is, you know, slightly less popular than Donald Trump. Uh, but I think that the, the, that and the, I was thinking about the whole idea of the new abnormal, uh, and I was talking to some LBJ, uh, LBJ students last night. And what is difficult and I think hard for people in the media and people generally to wrap their mind around is that we've never had someone like this. People would come up to me over and over in the campaign, as is when I was at the Post, and they would say, why don't you fact check Donald Trump? And I would say, I'm happy to point you to the 92 claims that our fact checkers fact check, by the way, 65% of which were found to be totally and completely false. I'm happy to point you to those. What they were really asking is, why doesn't the fact checking you do change either his behavior or the behavior of the people who vote for him? And that's a harder question. We've never had someone who, but politicians exaggerate. They sometimes lie, breaking news, you know. Like, uh, uh, but normally, and this is true of a Republican or a Democrat typically, if they say something that can be demonstrably proven to be false, they stop saying it. Most, most do. I mean, they right. do, particularly when you get up to a certain level where there's national media scrutiny and the national media is yeah. like, this is, the facts are X and you are saying Y they mostly will, will stop. He doesn't do that. 
Right. Well, but, and but and that presents a real challenge because but the problem that we have as the media, just quickly, the problem yeah. that we have as the media is we do fact check him. We write all the time, look, no, there weren't Muslims uh, on 9-11 on buildings in northern, in northern New Jersey. No, no, Ted Cruz's father did not take part in the assassination of John Kennedy. Uh, no, his inauguration crowd was big. We do all that stuff, but if 35 or 37 or 38 percent of the public doesn't believe us because we are who we are, what are we going to do? We're going to uh, quit as the media and then reform as some other thing? I mean, that's the challenge. I, 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 I'm, I'm very concerned I'm actually about working the roving assassin menace yeah. of Rafael. Yeah, yeah, and you are working on this issue. I'm actually working on this so issue. Through your Newmark, at Pointer, your, your at Newmark Pointer, chair yeah. door at Pointer, you're working on this right, issue. Right, I'm actually right. working on this issue, which is figuring out, working with newsrooms, working with thought leaders about ways that we rebuild public trust with the media. And you know, if you look at the, if you look at the um, figures, um, Gallup started surveying public trust in the, in the media back in the 70s. And it's been a line like this that has gone down since the 70s. It was at an all-time low last summer in 2016. It actually has gone up a little bit. The, the sort of the Donald Trump attacking the media as fake news, um, and that whole thing has actually not only led to an increase in newspaper subscriptions for papers like the Washington Post and the New York Times and others, it has also led to a little blip of increase in trust in the media. But I think there's a much larger problem here. We could have a bigger conversation about it. Newsrooms have to do things that convince people that they're actually invested in people's communities. Yep. Local news and the death of local news has a lot to do with this. That is why organizations like the Texas Tribune are so important. The idea of being invested in your community is key. And, and there is no question that solutions journalism, and I don't mean like, you know, oh, you know, puppies and kittens. No, I mean like solutions journalism that takes hard looks at what are the things that work in some places and how can that be applied somewhere else. That's the kind of journalism that builds trust. Local journalism is the kind of journalism that builds trust. I mean, there are a whole host of reasons we could talk yeah. about why trust has gone down. I think part of it was the rise in right-wing talk radio, the FCC, the end of the fairness doctrine, the sort of Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, the sort of the way that cable, the rise of cable and right-wing talk radio led to this sort of, um, you know, hyper-partisanship that we now see echoed in the digital space. And it has allowed people to think, well, I'm going to believe that. I'm not going to believe anything else. I believe my media. I don't believe the media. That's a larger problem. But what, what Chris was saying about the fact checks is another really important point, And that is that the studies show that, and, and the Washington Post has at this point fact-checked over, as of a month ago, over a thousand, thousand false right, or yeah, misleading right, right, claims right. uttered by Donald Trump since he took president, and the average, according to the Washington Post fact-checker, is almost five a day. It's 4.9 false or misleading claims a day. Now, the point is that when you look at the studies on fact-checking, you can convince people that a particular fact is false, but you can't change their behavior. They'll say, okay, well, so Donald Trump's not right about refugees causing more crime or killing Americans, but I'm still going to vote for him because that just sounds right to me. Right. So me, that's it, the thing. It, it, it changes their opinion about that thing, but it right. doesn't change their vote or their mind. I, I want to ask Ben about a version of this, but I'm understanding the time we have is limited. We have microphones in the aisles. We'll go to questions from some of you here in just a couple of minutes. So please line up, if you would, on either side. And we'll be happy to bring you into this. Ben, Steve Schmidt, the strategist and commentator, was here earlier in the Tribune Festival weekend. And he made an observation about the divide, where the media gets the Trump voters wrong. Is that the media looked at this election through the lens of a vertical line left and right. 
when in fact the correct way to think of it is through a horizontal line. Above the horizontal line were people who benefited from the system. Beneath the horizontal line were people who were screwed by the system. And that's why the Bernie Sanders voters and the Donald Trump voters actually found common cause to some degree during this campaign, possibly had more in common with one another than they did with people in their own parties because they were all below the line. And that maybe the Trump voters don't care so much about lies or about a particular policy that goes against something he said or not draining the swamp because at the end of the day, they still feel like the system is screwing him and they have the best chance of getting that rectified by him. So Schmidt, Schmidt isn't wrong, but what I would, I would do it a little bit differently, which is to say that I, I think that what you actually saw uh, you know, in this past election is that the culture war matters in a much more significant way than I think we've appreciated. And it, after the last election, there, were, there was a wave essentially of commentary about the future that basically said, um, you know, old white people in America, your time is over. You, you are inevitably going to pass away. But all over after for the 20, Anglos, that's 2012. right. Yes, yes, yes. yes. 2012. Well, that, there was a Republican autopsy that, uh, yes. that, that and, effectively and, and validated and that, that theory. And right? that basically yeah. said, you know, right. we, are, we are in a post-apocalyptic era for the culture war, which is what drives people like social conservative evangelicals who had insisted that it was important that the president be a prayerful, prayerful man with God in his heart into the arms of this post-apocalyptic bully who will be a bully on their behalf. But, but just going back a little bit to the, the issue that Nira was talking about, I think the thing we need to understand is that the, the decline of trust in the media is driven in part by the fact that you have a Sisyphean task of having all these different media entities that are reporting all these different things, and they all have to be right all the time. Because if they're wrong in any one instance, then it reflects on the whole bias. And no offense to... Chris, CNN contributor, but they had to retract a couple of articles. And what that does is suddenly people say, well, all of CNN is like that. They are all this you know, entity yes, that they do. got this story wrong. And somehow Chris ends up having to defend a story he didn't work on, didn't report on, didn't write anything about, and ends up having to sort of say, well, I'm part of this entity. But the thing to understand about this is that this decline is not unique to media. It is a decline in That's every right. single institution in America. Public life. institutions Trust generally, in Congress, right. trust in courts, trust in organized religion, yep. trust, in, yep. trust in every, basically the only Cops. ones that are above the line are small businesses and the military. And that decline is something that has been right. a general social trend since Watergate is going to continue. And unfortunately, unless you have institutions that ultimately prove themselves to be healthy and part of society in a beneficial way, we're not going to see that turnaround, and that's going to lead to more and more trials. Charlie, quick, and then we're going to go to questions. Yeah, I, mean, right I, 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 I understand that. I understand that's the situation where we are. I don't think you can ignore the fact that this decline in trust in institutions, particularly institutions of government, began in the late 1970s and 1980s when the Republican Party committed itself to a philosophy that government was something alien, that drove them, drove people away from government on every level. Ronald Reagan's first inaugural, government is not, government is not the solution, government is the problem. In this country, we are government. And if we, if we decide that government is this alien entity and we become convinced of that, of course trust in the institutions is gonna decline. Not that, not that, not that the, the government itself hasn't right. conspired in its own demise in a lot of ways. I, I, think, I think the Iraq war, Katrina, a failed stimulus, a, you know, a failed approach to trying to get this economy. We're going to bring questions in from, from this group. This. Bob, we'll, we'll go as long as we can, one side, the other side, as may, take as many as we can. Bob. All right. 
we all know we're dealing with a man who, if he is not being talked about daily, feels he does not exist. He ceases to exist. So Steve Bannon has said in the book, uh, the, the Devil's Bargain, and since then, as long as we can keep the conversation about race, as long as the Dems talk about race, we win. And I think that is the game plan that's going on, which many of you have already uh, touched on today. Yeah. But that is the bottom line, is the permission to hate and the permission to be a bigot in America as your inalienable right yeah. started with Reagan. It started with Reagan. Let me give, let me give Bob, let me give Saliza an opportunity to talk about that. It's amazing, 50 odd minutes of this conversation, first time Steve Bannon's name has come up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, how how, how I mean, pernicious an influence was Bannon in the first months of this administration, or did we overstate the degree to which Bannon drove the train? Um, I'll defer a little bit to, to, if, if you see Ben violently shaking his head no, then I'm willing to acknowledge <laughs> my view is not 100% right. But what I, my, my belief is that what Donald Trump had was, and I, I think Charles makes a really important point of sort of cultural celebrity. He, he understood that he had a platform in culture that many people who... Uh, are in the upper middle class or, or, didn't grasp that he was seen as like this aspirational success story. What rich people, he's powerful, he dates beautiful women, he says what he wants. That's appealing to a lot of people. So he had that at the start of all of this, which I don't think we realized. And I think that that's that was difficult. Remind me of your question. Well, it was Bannon. Because I'm. Oh, Bannon. <laughs> I, 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 I'm doing my whole. It's okay. Okay. Good. Now I'm back. Um, <laughs> Bannon. Breadcrumbs, buddy. Oh, I let go. What, what happened? He was thinking uh, about I stayed out too late last night. Um, Bannon. So what Bannon does is Bannon gives him. Uh, he has this vague sense of like alienation, which is weird because he's a rich guy, uh, and like I've been screwed. He, he, I think his 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 mo always is outside looking in. My dad was a developer in Queens, but he never went into Manhattan. I went to Manhattan, but they never accepted me, so I had to start my own clubs. I went to Washington, and they laughed at me as a serious presidential candidate. Yes, Bannon gives that sort of bubbling of just random thoughts a framework. Right, Bannon has been in that place for a long time. The elites are, they think they're better than you. They, this resentment, yep. this victimhood. So Bannon, Bannon provides the architecture on which Trump hangs these beliefs. Because the truth of the matter is, you can disagree whether Trump's a limousine liberal or not, but Trump is not, he's not a conservative Republican prior to running for office. And I'm not totally convinced as a conservative Republican. Now, his views don't fit we are, this is another abnormal, we're used to fitting all views on Ted Cruz to Sheila Jackson Lee, right, on that broad spectrum. His views are like over here. Right. Right, they don't fit on They're this linear perspective. Yeah. And I think that that, but so Bannon gives him, Bannon gives him the architecture, the structure on which put it, that's why Bannon leaving, it was painted as, I'm not, D Donald Trump has, I think, mainline Bannon. Like, he, he has taken the lessons of Bannon in. Uh, 
and I don't think that will go away. Ma'am. So I have a question about how the media can stop being manipula manipulated by Trump. When you think about his control of the discussion and control of the stage every day with all these tweets, he's sort of making reality into reality TV. Yeah. Questions, what are you going to do about it? Virginia, what, what about, about that? Are we, okay. are, 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 do, do we own that? I love this question. Um, I think that there's no um, dispute that the media, um, as Joey Ito says, who's on the board of the New York Times, that the, um, that the, the New York Times became a pawn. It wasn't writing about the pawns. It, was, it, was, it became a, a tool of certain Kremlin psyops, including, you know, seeding certain ideas and hashtags and memes into the, into the language. And then also the constant assault of this reality star um, who, you know, one of his moves on The Apprentice was to address one person and make them feel like they were going to get fired and then fire the guy over here for speaking up on his, right? So it's like that mafia thing of like, I'm going to shoot you. No, I'm going to hit you in the head with a baseball bat till your skull is crashed. Um, and, uh, and so he did that, and we were constantly thrown, and we were constantly off our game, and we were constantly reactive in that way that a tournament chess player fails in front of a park chess player. The, the, these are the two solutions. One is, and I, I'm sounding like, I mean, I am a neoliberal corporate shill, but I am uh, about to shill for Twitter one more time and say the threaders on Twitter, so this is a particular use of Twitter where you stack tweets on top of each other, have managed in some cases, and these people are professionals, they're often not journalists, people from the intelligence community, former federal prosecutors, um, lawyers, um, that you'd think that like the death of expertise, as Tom Nichols calls it, would make you not interested in someone you know, whose bio says he's got a PhD in foreign policy, or he, like Ben Wittes, writes for lawfare and is an expert on national security and the law. These are the people, we think that Twitter is about this Copernic bullshit. In fact, a, like, if you follow selectively on Twitter, what you're getting are these short essays by professionals. I mean, Asha Rangappa is now my hero, former FBI uh, special agent, who can tell you what a pre-dawn read, no-knock raid is, the same way that, you know, how Manafort's papers were, were, were seized. Um, and, you know, she's been just working quietly as, a, um, as an FBI special agent, doing this stuff over and over again. And now, citizens have questions about how that stuff goes down, about what those subpoenas and, and warrants might mean. And so, there's one very, very, very good investigative reporter who's probably the Bob Woodward of the occasion, who just, whose work should not be missed, and that is Robert Mueller. So we are right now, and he's in skiffs, you know, these like buildings that you can't hear anything out of. He's not obviously writing clickbait. But sooner or later, he will present his findings that he has, you know, that, he, that, he, that he's, uh, you know, used deep sourcing for and, and techniques that only prosecutors understand. Um, and he'll present his findings. In the meantime, don't read the New York Times. Don't read op-eds. With all due respect to everyone who goes on television, myself included, don't watch television. Listen to a couple of podcasts. Whoa, whoa. And, yeah, sorry. <laughs> let's, not, let's not get crazy. I mean, but, let's, uh... but, but for <laughs> Yeah, you were, you were sailing right along there, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, mean, I was with you right there to the end. Yeah. And I cut the court. Like newspapers, Still. no, whatever. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but, but read those Twitter threaders because they're not professional journalists. They're people who are giving us our late life education in civics. 
Um, follow Lawrence Tribe, follow Noah Feldman, follow people like who, follow Asha Rangappa, follow Susan Hennessy, uh, follow Molly McHugh, do, do, follow do Bill a, Browder. Do us, a, do us a favor, after this event is over, yeah. tweet out a bunch of these follows with the hashtag TribFest. Oh, you got it, you got it. Okay, I mean, good. they are the writers and reporters okay. of our time. Sir. Thank you. Let's talk about money. Talk about Media, money. Money. Media is giant business. The major media outlets are controlled by about five or six corporations. When CNN hosted the second Republican debate, their advertising rate for that time slot went up 40 times. Not okay. 40%, 40 times. Gretchen Carlson gets paid 20 million. Roger Ailes gets paid 40 million as an insurance policy on the Fox brand. Question. Megyn, Megyn Kelly can turn down $20 million from Fox. Talk to me about the money in the media. You guys are business people. You work for businesses. They have right. to make money. Trump made the pitch, and you all know this, to all the network heads and all the newspapers, right. whatever you think of me, I generate clicks, eyeballs, and your, revenues, and, your and adverts, ratings. And your I mean, I want to, I'm, I'm a broken record here, but there is one place where people are doing pro bono journalism and they're really not getting a dime for it. And it is Okay, a but place let's where put that aside. I get it. Okay. Put it aside. Let's go to the mass all right, media let that's me, all let, about let's money. Get, I want to ask Charlie Pierce, who I suspect is probably skeptical of corporate media generally, to answer this. Well, question. except I've worked for it my entire life, right. <laughs> starting in 19... Uh, no, 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 I mean, no, no, I started... One of the things that I'm grateful for is that I began my career and spent five glorious years at the Boston Phoenix on an alternative newspaper. Alternative newspaper. Which was sort of the internet for you kids of its time. Mm -hmm. Because the alternative press grew in the same way a lot of the internet grew, which is basically a skepticism of what was then the mainstream media. We did stories that were being ignored. We could write differently than the mainstream media could. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that corporate consolidation of the media is enormously dangerous. Uh, that being said, I work for Hearst Publishing. You know, I mean, that's just the way it is. I, I have never had any corporate interference in what I've written. But uh, that's because I work for, you know, I work for people I, so, who understand. So, as, as is the rules of a debate, as would be the rules of a debate, Saliza has been name-checked, and so he needs to get a chance. Oh. Um, I want to give him an opportunity I, to respond. I mean, CNN is a large corporation owned by another large corporation that may be owned soon by another large, larger corporation. If it gets federal government approval. Right. Yeah. Right, that's why I said well, if. Does that inherently um, uh, impede your ability to be fair and to hold people accountable? Um, no. Uh, I, I, that was pe weak. Pe people, would all, people, would all, people would always say, I, I, honestly, I feel it less at CNN than uh, in terms of questions than I felt it at the Post in the Bezos era. People would always ca call, because Trump made this an issue, and say, call me, email me, and say, Oh, did Jeff Bezos tell you to write that? <laughs> My response always was like, I'm flattered that you think Jeff Bezos knows who I am, number one. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> my thing is, and I suspect everyone on the stage would say something similar, is the day that corporate concerns or the business side of the operation tells me not to write something, that's the day that I walk away. 
I mean, that, that's the, but, but until then, I feel as though, as long as I am unconstrained in doing what I'm doing day in and day out, uh, I mean, I, I don't spend my days writing anti-CNN screeds, right? And maybe if I did, they would kind of put the hand on. But otherwise, you're free but to do whatever you no, want. No, yeah, I mean, like, Jeff Zucker is the president of CNN. He, he, he has never once said to me, now, I've worked there for six months, it's a small sample, but he has never once said to me or even broached the possibility of me not writing something because he disagreed with it or because there was some, I mean, when, when it's Time Warner, there's a million, he's never broached that. And, and candidly, I wouldn't have gone to work there if I thought he would. So what's hard is I know from the outside, it's like all these big corporations, they own everything. I'm just saying from one guy's experience of working at the Post under, Be under Don Graham, then Bezos, and now at CNN, I, I don't feel that, and I don't know of any journalist who worked, who would continue to work at a place where they felt as though uh, they, you, there were places you couldn't go. Would you do, would you do, would you do, would you do Sean Hannity's job for $15 million a year? Sir. Would I do Sean Hannity's job for $15 million a year? Yeah. No. I, I like I, my job. We're butting up okay. against we're butting up against the end of our time, which unfortunately I, always happens. I want to let Ben. Ben was asking if so, he can get in. So I I don't want to speak uh, ill of anyone on this panel, but do not make the mistake of overestimating the importance of cable news. Cable news is not watched by the majority of Americans. It's not watched by a lot of Americans. Okay. <laughs> I think more people. More, more people. Oh, I'm sorry, Ben's mic is. <laughs> It's I a technical issue. More, Fox more, people, <laughs> more people watch CBS, God forbid, right, yeah. than cable well, news. Fox, yep. Fox News, the simple fact is that Fox News on a good night does 2.5 million. It does 650,000 in the demo. And there are 300 million people in the country. And there are 300 million right. people in the country. So just don't overestimate. So right. this, is, this is my fourth go-around with running a company. And the company that I have right now has 12 full-time people. We're a majority female staff. Uh, we're a quarter uh, minority, and we have been around now for four years. We have people who have contracts with CNN, Fox, CBS. We are consistently in all these different other mainstream publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, we're on NPR, et cetera. And this is The Federalist, just to plug it, and also follow it on Twitter. Thank you. Uh, but but the, the point I would just make is we are in a period of incredible disruption in the media landscape. If anything, I would be much more confident now that corporate America is not enabled to direct the fortunes of media companies Good. from a top-town level than we were 10 to 15 years ago. Well, we have that disruption it, it, happening. It, it's, it's good to know that at least we can find something relatively positive and upbeat to end on. <laughs> <laughs> we are at the end of our time, unfortunately, both for this panel and for the 2017 festival. Give them a big hand. Give yourselves a big hand. Thank you. And we'll see you next year. Thank you very much. Congratulations.